Hi, I'm Jim Mullins. I'm a pastor of vocational and theological formation for Redemption Tempe and on the leadership team of Surge. I'm Danae Pierre. I'm the executive director of the Surge Network and part of Roosevelt Community Church in downtown Phoenix. I'm Lauren Kutzko. I worship at New Valley Church in downtown Phoenix, and I'm the owner of uh, The Entrepreneur Source, a career transition coaching firm. And we're the hosts for the Surge podcast. Today we're talking about story. We're talking about the biblical story, how we find our place within it. Sometimes what we're going to do in these podcasts is we're going to have interviews with people. Sometimes we're going to pull a clip of a talk that was given at a surge event and do a little bit of reflection on that. And today we will be playing a short clip from Mike Goheen's first quarter surge intensive talk and reflecting on that a bit. And one of the things he really emphasizes is the importance of viewing the Bible as a story that we enter into and live within. It's the narrative that defines our life. So I thought a first good discussion would be to talk about if we could enter into a story, what story would we enter into? A movie, a book, comic, any one of those things. So that's where we're going to start. If my co-hosts can introduce themselves and then tell us what story you would you would launch into uh, if you could enter into any story. Well, I'm Danae Pierre, and I'm the executive director of the Surge Network. And I'm the worst person to ask that question because actually Luke Simmons, one of our pastors, pretty regularly, and Vermont, my husband, make fun of me for not having enough literature or movies or stories in my life. So um, I, I feel like it's a cop-out to reference anything in Chronicles of Narnia, since that is a children's version of the gospel story. But the book that most captured me as a child, and I've read it probably 30 times, even as an adult, is The Magician's Nephew, when uh, they first get to go into Narnia, and it's pitch black, and they get to see the earth created. So Aslan sings the earth into existence. And I remember as a little girl being captured by that picture, and, and still, if I could be there and live in that um, beautiful moment, of course, it quickly turns terrible, quite quite like our, our own gospel story. But mm. yeah, yeah, I remember that being one of my favorites as well. One of my favorite. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. If the creation was sung into existence, what, what kind of music do you think would be in the background? Oh, my goodness. I'm also a bad person to ask that question. <laughs> With music? Yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, I just listened to contemporary christian worship music and hill song so yeah i, <laughs> yeah. I feel like my my maybe uh, you were the worst person to ask that too <laughs> my husband's introduced me to jazz and i am growing in appreciation for it it's not a natural appreciation but it's something that through his love and explanation of it i am appreciating more and more so maybe some some good miles davis you know what i've noticed about jazz is that Jazz is the music that everyone wants to like, but nobody actually likes it. Very few people in the world that understand it. That's right. That's right. And a lot of people say they like it. They know they should. But they don't like it. They're just pretending. They don't. They don't play that in the car when they're just driving Jim, by themselves. Jim, you also don't listen to any music. Like you can't even handle hymns. So I can't handle hymns. No, you cut hymns from surf school. Hem- I did. Yes. No, no, no. I didn't cut you hymns like from surge less, school. You like music less than I do. Yeah, probably. That's probably true. Yeah. I do love music. It's just celebratory Christian yeah. music. For the listener out there, I do like 
<laughs> I do like hymns. Spend I do yourself. like music. <laughs> Here's the problem. Here's where it comes in. When I first became a believer, it was in the midst of the whatever they called the worship wars, where they were deciding between contemporary music and traditional hymns. And I'm like a brand new believer. And I show up for this like debate they're having at the church where they're deciding it. It's sort of a congregational style church. And I was dumbfounded because I was thinking the whole time, both of these styles of music are terrible. <laughs> like, have they not heard of R&B and hip hop and those sorts of things? So that's kind of the world I, know, I stepped I into. I R&B could have been around when when Earth was sung into existence. Yeah. That, yeah. That better than jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Gerald Levert. There you go. There's only one person listening who's going to get Gerald Levert. Is, but... It'll be my wife who listens to it too much because I have it around. <laughs> so, Lauren, how about you? What story would you enter into? Yeah, I was saying before, uh, I don't like this question. I have no idea. I, I feel like I, now that I know that I'm supposed to enter myself into the biblical story, I put so much energy into that that, like, Asking a different story I want to be a part of. I don't know. I'm trying to even think what are the stories that I even enjoy. You know, it's like some of my favorite. Have you seen a good movie? I have seen a good movie. I don't know. I, I don't know what the last one I saw was. My, I mean, my favorite movie of all time is like Good Will Hunting, you know, and, and I, so I don't, I don't get captivated by, you know, Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings as much, you know, these sort of epic adventure types of stories uh, for some reason. I, the ones that really, kind of draw me in seem to be just almost normal but something's a little bit wrong there's a there's a broken relationship between two people a father and a son a husband and a wife things like that for some reason so I don't know I don't know what what that is that sounds super boring a little bit <laughs> yeah uh, you know with all these uh marvel movies out and everything like, you want to just go do some math yeah, with... totally. <laughs> yeah, beautiful girls you know yeah. you remember that movie that was like 20 years ago but uh this sort of struggling pianist comes home for a high school reunion you know and there's just sort of this uh all these relational dynamics that happen and it's just totally boring just like slice of life kinds of things it's it's like danae's answer about christian contemporary music you know like no no you know what i think uh i think if we had uh vermont here he'd have uh, some good answers yeah Yeah. vermont pierre danae's husband lead pastor at roosevelt community church and the only person i've ever known to do a panel on the gospel and comic books or something like that he's done that right well i don't it wasn't about the gospel but he talks at the at the what is it comic-con the comic-con convention on gi joe characters from the 19 something 70s 80s around does yes it's his hobby Uh, yeah this this conversation makes me realize that we have a very imbalanced enneagram Because we are like lacking people that understand dimension and, and <laughs> art and layers, like yeah. Unless that's you, but it doesn't seem you, like it. You have you don't have a lot of hope for me. <laughs> so the way that I will answer th- the question is, I'll say Hamilton. Play Hamilton. I I just saw it last week. Oh my gosh! Uh, someone gave me tickets. That's amazing. Uh, that's the second amazing. person I heard that has received that as a gift. Who's- you know what? I think that there's one guy who just got so excited about Hamilton, he just bought up all the tickets, and you know he's kind of a rich Christian guy, and he's just been like doling them out. Sweet. So, um, so the reason why is I've always been sort of fascinated by the rivalry between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, but I was just caught up in that play, and the there's so many aspects of it, but the thing that actually stood out the most to me was 
Eliza Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's wife. And for some reason, it's actually like a theme that's not central to the to the play. But I was really in awe of unique resolve and forgiveness that she had towards a guy who was driven by his ambition and was hard to be around and was coming from poverty and trying to prove something about himself. And she just seemed like the person with integrity and forgiveness. And I really wonder to what degree the fruitfulness of Hamilton was connected to the work that she doesn't get credit for. Mm -hmm. And even in his character formation and things like that. And I think I resonated with it because that's a little bit of the dynamic between my wife and I. Mm -hmm. um, made me think about her a lot. There's actually a song in the soundtrack that I've listened to quite a bit. And it just makes me think about Jenny. And it's about Eliza Hamilton. Wow. So I would. So you're Alexander Hamilton in this analogy? I am the worst parts of Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you know, the, the stuff about like changing the world and all that. Yeah. Not so Not much. Really. But like conflicted, working a little too much, you know, ambitious, yeah. um, trying to prove something. Yeah, I resonated with that. Yeah, I, I just, as you were talking, I was realizing, I think, maybe what I was having a hard time with with the question. Um, and I think part of it is, I think some of what we're going to hear Goheen describe and how a story works mm -hmm. and understanding that the, the Bible is um, a story and a narrative that we are a part of, I, part of why that has resonated so much with me is, is realizing that the best stories are horrible. Like right. they have these horrible parts to them. So I, as you're saying that, and I was thinking about musicals and I was thinking about, you know, epic plays, I was thinking about like Les Mis, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and I was thinking, that, that's an incredible story. I always walk out of that going, oh my gosh, that was so powerful, but I would never want to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, good right? point. Like, yeah. like, and so I think there's something in my own idolatry of the way that life is supposed to work that I have a tendency to believe that it can be problemless, that we can sort of do this perfectly. We can design the perfect thing. And so when I think about myself entering into any of the great stories, I'm kind of like, well, I don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that would be awful. Yeah. That's not an inciting incident yeah. that I want to be part of my life. That's a good point. And the reality is the story that we enter into, the story of the Bible, is also one of those stories. Right. Uh, stories of very brutal things happening in a fallen world. But we need a narrative to make sense of those brutal things that help us have a vision for what the future is and how to respond to them in life. And so the clip that you're about to listen to now is from Mike Goheen. Mike Goheen is the director of the Missional Training Center. He's written a number of books, such as Drama of Scripture, A Light to the Nations, uh, Living at the Crossroads. He's written a number of books. He's a professor. He is a thought leader who moved to Arizona specifically to work with the Surge Churches and to help start this seminary, which is now a branch of Covenant Seminary, but is called the Missional Training Center. Every year he speaks at our first quarter intensive, and so you're about to hear the last 15 minutes or so of his talk at that intensive. Story is not just a metaphor. It's actually the best way of talking about the way the world actually is. 
That is that God made the world, not as a static kind of thing, but with a dynamic history that had meaning. And that human beings need that meaning to understand the significance of their lives. So a story is the best way, Wright says, about talking about the way the world actually is. Back to Newbegin again. He wants to impress on us that we've got a choice to make. Because he says, in our contemporary culture, two quite different stories are being told. The one story is the story of evolution, and here he's not talking about evolution simply as a scientific theory, but evolution as sort of the cosmic beginnings of the world. The story of evolution, of the development of the species through the arrival, uh, through the survival of the strong, and the story of the rise of civilization our type of civilization, and its success in giving humankind mastery over nature. That's the sto our story, and our story is one of using science and technology to build mastery over nature, and now that we've done that, it's started to produce all kinds of experiences and goods, and it's moved very much into a consumer culture. He says that's the story that we're being told every day on the news, every day in advertising, every day in education. That story is pounding itself into our brain. He says, but the other story is the one embodied in the Bible. The story of creation, fall, of God's election of a people, that is Israel, to be the bearer of his purposes for humankind, and the coming of the one in whom that purpose is fulfilled. That is the person of Jesus Christ. And then he ends with these words. I used to teach a worldview class to introductory class to freshmen coming into university. And I tell the biblical story. Then I'd tell the Western story and I'd ask them to struggle with how do you live faithful in the biblical story when this story's pounding itself in your brain. And I felt that I was successful in my class if at the end on the evaluations they could say something like this last sentence. And very often it happened. These are two different and incompatible stories. The story that's shaping the United States, Canada, and Europe is a different story than the biblical story. And it will shape our lives in very different ways. And so the call of Newbegin, and now increasingly because of him, many others, is to ask the question, how do we live faithfully in that biblical story? Richard Bauckham, British New Testament scholar, I think probably one of the top three scholars in the world. He's talking about the authority of scripture, and he says, the authority of this story. In other words, let me put it another way. If you wanted to know the authority of someone, and you want to know, like, if Tyler's my boss, and he's sitting in front here, and he says, stop. I know what that means. And I either submit to that authority, or I say, go on, keep it going. I do one or the other. When I give it a command, I know what that authority is, and I know either obey or disobey. But what if you ask somebody, and you say, well, once upon a time, they start to tell a story. How's that authoritative? How does the Bible, God's authority in our lives, if it's ultimately a story, and what I mean by story, just to be very clear, is not fiction. Okay, to be very clear, I mean by story, actual historical events, that matters to the biblical story. Okay, so what does it mean to have the authority? Here's what he says. To accept the authority of this story is to enter it and to inhabit it. It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story. In other words, the Western story is a secular story that says the world, there is no God, and if there is, he's up there in heaven, and he has very little to do with your life now. The biblical story says, oh no, 
In God, we live and move and have our being. God is present in history. Now, those stories, tell, they tell two different stories and they narrate the world in two different ways. And we got it to choose. Which is it? And the biblical story, we're invited to inhabit that story. And the way it tells us the world is, is actually the way the world really is. Again, this is a second statement by Wright that is incredibly strong. Matter of fact, it's so strong that some people have to wrestle with it for a little while to get hold of what he's saying. He says the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story, which is the story of the whole world. What is Christianity? It's a story of God creating the world, human beings messing it up, God choosing Israel, them becoming part of the problem, and then God sending the person of Jesus Christ to his life, death, and resurrection, renews, brings about the renewal of the creation, opens up a time for mission until Christ returns. And what Wright is saying is that's what Christianity is. And I remember very clearly one time in a university classroom, the big class speaking about this, and I remember a Muslim sitting in about the second row, and he came up to me after, he asked me, could I carry your books to your office? I said, sure, if you want. He says, because I, I want to talk to you. So it was about, I was walking way across campus, and as he walked beside me, he says, this is the first time I've understood what Christianity really is. He says, I've been told so many times, it just seems like this jumble of beliefs, and now I see how these cohere in terms of the biblical story. And then he said something else interesting, he says, it also helped me understand that as a Muslim, I'm living out of a very different story than you. And he says, it also helps me understand that most of these secular kids here are living out of a very different story than either of us. And I thought, you got it, <laughs> in one lecture. The whole point of Christianity he came to understand was this story told in the Bible. I want to give you three observations, one from a Hindu, one from an unbelieving Jew, and one from a, a secular non-Christian sociologist about the Bible. This is what a Hindu once said. He says, I can't understand why you missionaries, this, this, by the way, he was, a wor he was a scholar of the world's religions, and he understood Christianity better than a lot of Christians. He thought it was nonsense, didn't believe a word of it. He thought it was the silliest thing in the world that Christians would hang their beliefs on one man in the middle of history, and especially a man humiliated on the cross. He thought that was absurd. But here's what he said to a missionary. I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as another book of religion. It's not another book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India already. We don't need any more. What I find in your Bible is a unique, he's using technical language here, a unique interpretation of universal history. And then he defines the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race. And he says, and therefore, a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. In other words, what I see in your Bible is a claim to tell the true story of the world that gives meaning to human life. And then he says, that is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside of it. Now, I know much more about this conversation, and the conversation went more like, went like this. He said, I think you Christians are crazy. I think you're making claims that are absurd that no other religion would make a claim unless they've accepted your Old Testament, like Islam and Judaism. He says, you're making an incredible claim that you know where the, the world began in creation. You know where it's headed. And you claim, of all the stupidest things you can imagine, that the clue to understanding the meaning of that 
is bound up in the life, death, and resurrection of a male Jew lived 2,000 years ago. That's absurd. But he said, if you believe it, if you believe that gospel, as silly as it is, why would you reduce the Bible, he wonders, to something less than it is? You've got something unique. You've got something making bigger claims than any other religion. Why would you do anything? Why would you make it something less and turn it into a book of doctrines and ethics? He says, it's much bigger than that. Now, this next story, I think I'm going to explain it rather than read it. It's more technical. This is a famous literary critic, and here's what he's saying. He's comparing the Old Testament and Homer's Odyssey, and he says, here's how stories work. When you watch a movie, when you watch a TV show, when you read a novel, when you go to a play, here's how stories work. Just before we left, I went to see Midsummer's Night's, Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare. It's hilarious. And I laughed my way through that. And I remember seeing it five years ago with my son. And we laughed our way through it. And it was just, it was fun. And what we did as we came into the tent, we sat down and then we set aside our disbelief. And what we basically said was, there are really worlds of fairies. And we're going to live like that for three hours. And there really are kings of fairies, and there really are people that can, who can, whose heads can turn into ass heads, and so on. We believe that for the next three hours. I mean, can you imagine if I was sitting there saying to my wife, <laughs> there's no such thing as fairies. Fairy king, right. I mean, I wouldn't be enjoying it, and I'd be irritating everybody around me. No, you go live into that story. Or if you live into CSI and say, that's not the way things really work. You don't have that much evidence. And you start making all these statements about a story. You say, how stupid. No, you don't do that. You, li- you, you suspend disbelief, to use the language of the English scholar. You, and you live into that story. And here's what Auerbach is saying. That's how stories work. And at the end, the story's over. I stand up. I clap. And we gave a standing ovation. And then I walk out of the tent. And I don't for another minute believe there's such a thing as fairies floating around in forests that can do all these crazy things. I know better, and I walk out, I'm out of the story. Auerbach says, and this is what makes him so angry, he's an atheist that left, it, that left uh, Germany under Nazi rule. He says, the problem with the Old Testament and the problem with the Bible is if you come into that story, you may not leave it because it claims to be the true story. And if it said fairies exist and it doesn't, then you better believe it. But if it says God comes to live in the midst of, is living in the midst of this world as creator, that's true. That's just not something that we suspend our disbelief to learn on Sunday morning and then walk into the real world. That's a true story of the world. It claims to tell the truth about the world. And that's why Auerbach, he thought the Bible was a terrible book because it was claiming to tell the truth about the world. And he hated that. I'll finish with this last quote. This last quote is a quote that comes from an Australian sociologist. And his only interest is to analyze the Christian faith in Western culture. That's all he wants to do. Obviously, he has a prejudice against the Christian faith, but he looks at the Christian faith in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, and says, why is it? Why is it that people are leaving the faith so fast? And I don't know if you know this, but over the last 20 years, the church has been shrinking fast in the West. And for every one person that leaves the faith in Western culture, three become Christians in the Southern Hemisphere. Did you know that? Every day, for every Christian that leaves the faith in the United States, Canada, and Europe, three become Christians in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. That's just another part of the story. But he's saying, why is it? What's happening? Why are so many people 
leaving the church in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States. Why is this happening? This is his analysis. He says this, the waning of Christianity, he says, as practiced in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. Two sides to that. They're failing to pass along the story as the true story of the world to the next generation and to those that are discipling. And secondly, they're failing to make that story relevant to the issues of the day and speaking with power to the issues of the day. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Hard to hear John Carroll's word. The waning of Christianity as practiced in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. So the question that I like to ask at the end of any talk or interview is if your memory was wiped out and you could only remember one thing from Mike's talk, what would it be? Lauren, why don't you go first? Yeah, I don't know why. It really strikes me that the place that we're at in the story today, and he talked about, uh, I guess, North America, United States, Canada, and Europe, people leaving the faith, and how in the Southern Hemisphere, there, you know, what, what do you say, three people um, are coming into the faith for every one that leaves, I think, in uh, North America and Europe. I don't know, that, that just really gives me a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about what that means for our point in the story. I'm curious if that you know, sort of how how being on mission as God's people and our, you know, where we where we do ministry, where we decide to live, um, if that sort of plays into it in any particular way. So that's mm. probably the um, thing that sticks out to me. That's good. That's good. May? Yeah, I would say more. You know, I've heard Goheen do this talk so many times now because he does it every year. And always what I'm struck by is his story about Marnie, his wife, giving birth to their oldest daughter and this whole idea around good news. And... I think it's more of a maybe like of an impression that it always makes with me of what what it looks like to understand and encounter Christ in such a profound way that as we encounter the world, we really are living out of this good news, mm-hmm. and 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 the way in which he expressed it, that same sense of passion and relief that the baby was okay, that Marnie was okay, that we would have that type of uh, that we would embody the gospel story in such a powerful way. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's the interaction he had with the Muslim student where after Mike's lecture, he realized that as a Muslim, he is living out of a different story than his classmates and Mike. And I actually think that that is something that I want every one of my surge table participants to go through is that light bulb moment where you realize, wait a minute. The people that I see every day and interact with every day, we're living out of a number of different stories. And that is going to change the way that we respond to different things. And people should realize that the Western story is just as much of a religious story as Islam or Buddhism. And so to believe in that story, to live into the Western story of modernism and technology and science as supreme, or or perhaps a different Western story, the postmodern story that everything's relative, to live into those stories is as much of a conversion as becoming a Muslim or a Buddhist. And we just don't realize how deeply 
those things have seeped into us. If we just quoted the Quran all the time, someone might wonder like, hey, are you really a Christian? But we quote these maxims mm. of the Western story all the time and just accept them as maybe even a part of the biblical story. You know, even as you talk, I've been thinking we're in Lent right now, um, a lot about confession and how this even relates, not just the conversion, but our continual conf- confession and kind of declaration to God that we we are so prone to wander into mm. these stories. So even as you kind of come more aware of the ways in which consumerism and individualism, um, safety, comfort, that these things shape you and your decisions, it's, it's constant. So even as light bulbs go on, we still have all these decisions we're making daily. And it's just such an opportunity to think about how we express that to God in our prayers and seek and are refreshed by his forgiveness and mercy. And I, I was thinking about that this weekend, especially even just shopping, grocery shopping and uh, cleaning out my refrigerator mm-hmm. and how I these things, these little mundane tasks that I never connected to worship that now are part of my repentance. And that's like almost part of my, my, my prayer life as I'm throwing away strawberries that I shouldn't have bought because I had some already, that this is part of this, the story that shaped me to, to spend money the way I do, to, to collect things. Yeah. Let me actually bounce off of that and ask us a couple questions, maybe of how we could imagine how the biblical story changes the way we engage certain things. So let me, let me first start with technology. What would you guys say? Lauren, how about you? How does the biblical story, or how should the biblical story, change the way we engage with technology versus maybe the modernist story or the the story of success? Hmm. Um, I don't know. Let me see if I can play it out loud. I guess the the modernist story in technology probably is because we can have it, we should have it, possibly. And because it's a material thing, material things are good and, and consumption is good, I guess. And so I think, you know, maybe not setting any limits around how much you're consuming certain types of technology. I guess the, the technology that's kind of in my mind is maybe social media and, you know, sort of the feed that's on my phone and my temptation to just basically be kind of swiping for the next thing or scrolling for the next update all the time. What's new? That, that is probably the, one of the most tempting technologies right now, I feel like, for me. And I feel like the biblical story and the way that rest plays into it and that we're not wired to be on all the time, like that is not how God has wired us. Um, but, but it's easy to fall into that. So he sort of created specific rhythms of rest into life. And so I tend to think about that in kind of a third, a seventh, a tenth, you know, so sort of a third of the day is when I should be sleeping mm-hmm. or resting. Um you know, eight, eight of the 24 hours, I guess. And then a seventh of the week, um, I should be resting. That's kind of the Sabbath day that was set aside. And then a 10th of my income uh, is given away. Like I don't need that. And, and that's part of what he teaches with that. And so that I think that for me, trying to structure that into how I, you know, sort of see what my Facebook friends are talking about um, is tricky. Yeah. That, not something I'm good at. Yeah. But that's, I feel like that I, I need to be better at that. Yeah. Well, and as we'll talk about in future podcasts, Lauren and I will be working together on Surge's faith and work initiative. And we've sort of added the word rest to that, that it's something to, to really emphasize. And I think rest and Sabbath might be one of the most countercultural things we can mm-hmm. do in a technology centered world. Yeah, I think even how technology is so distracting 
And so not that, not that it can't be used for good things, but I think about spiritual disciplines like noticing. And I think Abraham Heschel talks about wonder, practicing wonder, and how technology is just constantly present to distract from really beautiful things happening around you mm. and the importance of slowing down and turning your phone off so that you can be um, intently focused where you're at. But then also when you come back to technology, coming back to it with an awareness of how this is a, also a gift that can be used to be aware of what's happening in the world, to form your prayers. You know, I've been talking with my teenage son about you know, how do you use Facebook as a prayer list for your friends, mm -hmm. um, as a prayer list for the world, and, and approach it with an intentionality. But I don't think you can practice that intentionality with technology unless you take breaks from it and practice intentionality away from it. Mm -hmm. That's good. What about you, technology? <laughs> yeah, what about you? Well, I would say that there's a few rhythms that I've adopted, which I think have been really rich and life-giving. Actually, one of my goals for the year is to spend more time with people than screens. I was realizing that I was spending more time looking into the face of a glowing rectangle than the face of an actual person. Mm -hmm. And I think in the various stories of the world, consumerism or uh, just sort of relativism or those sorts of things, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But in the biblical story, the value placed on human image bearers is very high and to the degree that we can make our interactions uh, more embodied and less mediated, present, where you're being with a person, unlike this podcast right here, where we are disembodied <laughs> right. voices. We're, we're, we're so glad all you listeners yeah. are engaging so, with us through this technology. This is our first podcast, but also our last our podcast. Uh, no, we're joking. But the reality is, is that you can't live in our society, unless you're like Amish, without having some highly mediated interactions. But then just the question is, are there areas where you can take back some of that? So I have a bias toward, if I can have a face-to-face -face conversation, if it's reasonable to have that, have it. If, if it can then be a phone where you're hearing their actual voice, text message, so on and so forth. Another interaction or another practice that we have is we have like a certain box in our house it's like a little plastic box that's kind of like a jail for our phones at a certain mm -hmm. time of day and all the screens go there mm -hmm. and, and you guys even got like a burner phone at some point didn't you yeah we have or... a burner phone for our sabbath days on our sabbath days we turn off the phone you know actually lately we haven't been doing it as much but generally what we do is we turn off the phone we put it in that little technology jail we realize that technology is a good gift, but just not the centerpiece of life. And then this little burner phone that like terrorists and like Jason Bourne have uh, for <laughs> various reasons. We'll use it in case one of us goes on a hike or someone's going like Jenny's going out at night or something like that. And if you get stranded or what, whatever, it's for emergencies. Yeah, I do. I do think, though. In all of this, why going back to Gohan's talk is it's so much easier to give like principles, and, and I think that a lot of these ideas are helpful and practical. But I think this just slowing down to think about the impact that taking something like technology through the biblical story, yeah, um, as opposed to the consumeristic story, and just being aware of how consumerism is shaping it. Because I do think most Christians, the, especially the longer you're a Christian, the easier it is to be moralistic. And there's just there's some people probably most of us who, you know, tell me to put my phone away at 6 mm -hmm. p.m. or tell me to not use it two days a week. 
like check, like I can check that off my to-do list as opposed to like the thoughtfulness behind how this particular good gift of creation is being played out in my own life based on my own story and temptations and whatnot. That's a great point because the biblical story gives both a yes and a no Mm -hmm. and a yes, but it's completely reimagined in a different way. The yes of creation and the no of the fall and idolatry and those sorts of things. And so another voice that you get out in the world is we need to get away from all this technology because it's a distraction to you and it's a bother to you and it stresses you out. But it's very much functioning still out of this self-centered humanistic story of don't get stressed out and bothered by other people. But how can we reimagine technology as instruments of love and of good gifts of creation where we're cultivating God's world and showing the incredible things that he made? I mean, just think about a microchip in a computer. Basically, it's, it's made of silicon. That's the conductor in it. And that's sand. Some human being, an image bearer of God, put their hands into some sand and tried to figure out what to do with it. And now you can talk to somebody in Tokyo if you wanted. Incredible. Yeah. So let me ask this. I I think we're just going to focus on technology. That's the (laughs) thing we're we're talking about. Um, How have you seen technology be used as an instrument of loving others? I guess awareness. I mean, we're aware of so much more suffering mm-hmm. and so much more of the need for love. I, I think it's harder to be insulated. Well, sort of, right? It's like it's in some ways it's harder to be insulated from some things that are happening in the world. On the other hand, I feel like the likes and sort of the the customization of the information that comes into you that's based on everything that you've liked in the past allows you to almost be more insulated, right? So it's like on the one hand, you're hearing a lot more about the things that you wouldn't have heard about before we had certain technologies. On the other hand, you might be missing entire sectors of things that are going on in the world because you've never clicked on that type of article or link before. And I think that's one of the interesting things about interacting with people, right? Like, I mean, I could interact with the two of you and discover, like I find people saying all the time, did you see that thing on Facebook? You know, not not to make fun of uh, the older generation, but like my dad will often say, did you see that thing? <laughs> and I'm like, do you understand how news feeds work? Like you and I are not seeing the same news feed. But it's one of the interesting things about interacting with people because someone else, a human, another human can say, you know, based on all the random algorithmic clicks that I've done in my life this thing showed up that you may not have heard about. And so then we get to actually like interact in this sort of soup of nobody knew what anybody else was going to bring. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. My daughter's 13 and she has asthma and it's just something she'll, she's kind of adapting her life around. But this winter we had this moment in the urgent care where I was like, she would not be alive apart from, I mean, it feels right now like a pretty basic, you know, a lot of kids have asthma she gets the medicine she needs. She does softball. She's an athlete. But the reality is 50 years ago, 100 years ago, she would not be alive without it. So I do think there's, um, when I think through like the medical field and the ways that just simple things like reminders to, for nurses to wash their hands, I think is amazing how different technology has reduced death and things like that. So mm, Absolutely. Just think about reality that we live in Arizona. <laughs> if someone hadn't figured out how to make... Yeah an air conditioner, yeah. who of us would live here and how 
much would our life be miserable uh, apart from an air conditioner in the summers. And simple things like that are human beings cultivating and creating and making technology as a means of, of blessing. I think it's one of the things, Jim, I tell people all the time. I've read a lot of parenting books that have been pretty average, but like you've probably been the most influential on, on how I'm parenting my children. And those are some of the things where even just helping them slow down to think about an air conditioning mm. and like thank God for the gift of technology in our family, in our life, in our world are some of the ways that we can help shape, I think, even the next generation to, yeah. be, to have an awareness of these are good gifts given by God and can be used to love our neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the person who's inspired me the most in this would be George Washington Carver. And I'm sure we're going to do a whole podcast about him just because I like him so much. But he was born into slavery, but right at the end of slavery. So um, it was abolished by the time he was an adult. He was a believer who loved creation. He loved plants and flowers and gardening and all those sorts of things. And he delighted in it. He gave thanks to God for it. But then as he got older, he really became one of the most brilliant botanists and inventors in American history. And he realized there was blight happening with the cotton, that cotton fields and the cotton crops were failing because of, I think it was a certain either a pest or a fungus or something like that. And he realized that peanuts could actually bring nutrients into the soil and heal depleted soil um, because they fix nitrogen in the soil. And he could have probably made tons of money off of that. And maybe he, he probably did. But his first thought was, how can I love and serve others with this knowledge? And in particular, he was thinking about African-American folks who were coming out of slavery. And so he basically figured out how to teach people how to cultivate peanuts and then he invented over 300 uses for peanuts so as to create the market to support all these peanuts. So you're talking about he created paints, soaps, uh, different food sorts of things. And thousands and thousands of people flourished because of the technologies he was creating all related around peanuts. Mm -hmm. And it was all rooted in his gratitude towards God's good creation and his desire to love his neighbor as himself. And so I think the question that we all need to ask as we go out of this is not just how does the Bible shape our view and the biblical story shape our view of technology, but how does it shape our view of, of parenting, of work, of recreation, of civic engagement, of the way we have conversations, the way we engage in social media? How can we be different and distinct people who so clearly live out of a different story? So that's going to wrap it up for today. Next week, we're going to talk about the gospel and heart and do a little bit of reflection on that. Imagine that Aleppo was vacation cool and all the prison buildings were vocation schools. Imagine that we sip the finest water that exists and it ain't from Poland Spring, not it's more like Poland Flint. Imagine politicians with a different views all coming together every night, the news. Reports on the beauty of creation, not the mess. Get called some higher rest, just to need to higher bless. The pain from autism, all replaced by more wisdom. The lame hit the dance floor, moving on rhythm. And no stores closed, no, we're cutting more ribbons. And all them strip clubs become museums just for.